Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast. Episode number 53, Kate Klonick, The People, Rules, and Processes Governing Online Speech. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your guest host, Alex Nunn, from the University of Arkansas School of Law. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Kate Klonick, a fellow at Yale Law School's Information Society Project and a recent graduate of the PhD program at Yale Law School. Our podcast today features Kate's new article, The New Governors, the People, Rules, and Processes Governing Online Speech. The paper was recently published in the Harvard Law Review. Among other path-breaking insights, Kate's article sheds light on a new frontier for evidence and proof. As social media companies began to play an increasingly important role in modern society, their approach to moderating user content underwent significant evolution. Kate's paper recounts that, Initially, social media companies such as Facebook and Twitter made moderation decisions on subjective, impressionistic grounds, barring content on the basis of gut feelings. Yet over the last few years, distinct evidentiary rules emerged within these private companies to regulate moderation decisions in a more systematic manner. My conversation with Kate today will explore the emergence of these new private systems of evidence and proof demonstrating how analogs of Federal Rules of Evidence 403, 404, and other key evidence doctrines can be seen within these new evidentiary regimes. To set the stage, our discussion begins with an exploration of the Communications Decency Act, essentially the driving force for the emergence of these new private systems of evidence and proof, before we focus in particular on how the rules governing social media content moderation align with and differ from the federal rules of evidence. Kate, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So today's episode is definitely going to force us evidence scholars to step a bit outside of our comfort zones, because for the most part, we'll be leaving the federal rules of evidence behind. And instead, we're going to be focusing on an entirely new, yet increasingly important evidence and proof regime. That is, the evidentiary regime that exists within social media platforms as they seek to moderate and regulate user content. So to set the stage for that discussion, Kate, I want to work from the ground up. Your article notes that Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act has really been the driving factor in encouraging platforms to create their own evidence and proof regimes for evaluating speech. Tell us about Section 230. Kind of to understand where all of this stuff fits in, you have to know that in 1995, the Georgetown Law Journal published an article that 85% of the internet was actually taken up with porn. And uh, Congress got very upset at this and decided they were going to try to get the internet cleaned up. Of course, this was going to run into First Amendment problems. And at the same time that that was happening, two decisions were happening in kind of lower state courts. There was Cubby and then there was Stratton Oakmont. And both of those decisions were about holding intermediary platforms like AOL or Prodigy liable for defamation that was being posted on a site. And one decision said, hey, like, 
if you do any moderating of your site at all, intermediary platform, we're going to hold you liable for not taking down this defamation. And another decision said the opposite. It said, it doesn't make any sense to expect you to do all of this, so you have no liability whatsoever. And the conflicting decisions were really setting some interesting incentive structures, kind of core incentive structures in place for these platforms, because they were being faced with this dilemma of, if they do any moderation at all to take down bad stuff like pornography or spam, then they are going to be held liable for whatever other types of content like defamation is posted on their site. And if they do decide that they're going to moderate under that incentive structure, there's also the risk that they're going to take down way too much stuff because they're fearing liability just in general. And so you'd have a huge over-censorship on these platforms. And so to kind of strike this balance and to allow them to self-regulate within First Amendment scrutiny and everything else, there was an amendment passed to the Communications Decency Act or a new clause added the Section 230 that basically said, listen, we're going to allow you to, you, inter- intermediary platform, to basically be immune from tort liability for moderating practices in your site. So we'll let you kind of draw the lines. And the rest of the CDA was struck down in like 1999 in Reno versus ACLU, but Section 230 remains. And it's largely credited as being kind of the, the law that makes the internet what it is today. Now, it's quite interesting to me, given the broad grant of immunity offered by Section 230, that social media platforms have nonetheless decided to construct these new private systems of evidence and proof for moderating speech. Wouldn't it just make sense for them to cling to that immunity offered by Section 230 and then not bother with regulation? Yeah, that's a great question. So that's one of the things that people have wondered for a long time. Like, Why are they bothering to moderate at all. And the answer to that is really, there are a couple of reasons. One is that people really wanted moderation. They wanted to be able to go onto these sites and the various sites, whether it was YouTube or Twitter or Facebook or Reddit, all kind of created different structures through their moderation and curation of their content. And there is a lot of pornography and spam that would get posted. And so it allowed them to take down a lot of that type of content, but there's also violence and just general nudity and things like that that people just didn't want to see on whatever kind of mainstream platforms they were using. And so in order to kind of keep user engagement up and to keep people on the site, they had to moderate to kind of meet those standards. Great. So now that we've set the stage by exploring Section 230, I want to turn to your paper's fascinating historical account of the emergence of private evidence and proof regimes within social media platforms. In the earliest stage of these moderation regimes, what level of proof or what standard of indecency was necessary for, say, a Facebook or a YouTube to step in and remove or censor content? So for a long time, they had a general standard that they would just use when it was mostly American college-age kids using Facebook. It was also moderated by American college-age kids or just recent college graduates. And that standard was, if it makes you feel bad, take it down. And I call that a standard because it's just like a very loose general idea. And the reason that it works is because it's the people that were flagging things to be removed and the people who were enforcing that removal all kind of were operating off of the same basic norms and cultural understandings. And so that could work really well. And as Facebook expanded into a global arena and the number of people moderating, it just exploded from maybe a dozen people in a room in Menlo Park to a thousand people in Hyderabad, India and the Philippines and Eastern Europe. When you had that kind of shift, you couldn't base everything off of a single cultural norm because, in fact, 
there just wasn't one cultural norm that everyone was operating under. So you had to create more empirical, rule-based, almost just very visual cues that could be enforced by anyone, no matter their cultural background. Well, that segues nicely to my next question, because I wanted to ask, when did these early amorphous standards change? And importantly, what type of proof regime or system of rules emerged in their stead? Actually, that's what I just described a few seconds ago is is really the reason Facebook becoming global, Facebook opening up really in all types of new countries and areas and to all different age ranges. And that as a standard got tested, it just became increasingly clear that it was not a scalable system of enforcement for what the site had to do to moderate content to keep the type of environment that people had come to expect from Facebook. So I'll use Facebook as an example, but this was also going on at YouTube. It was happening a little little to a lot less at Twitter because they just decided to keep everything up. And that was just different ethos of the site and different business, business decisions. But basically, when you started having to train all of these people that were living abroad, offensive nudity was a type of offensive nudity Facebook wanted to keep up. That was a very different question in France than it was in India. And Facebook had to pick one set of rules and apply it globally. So they started transitioning to these very intricate rule systems. And like I said before, you really had to have rule systems that were based on an almost empirical, descriptive, visual level of what you could see in front of you. So for example, you couldn't say something like, oh, well, you're not allowed to wear ugly hats on Facebook. That would be a standard. You had to say, you're not allowed to wear orange hats on Facebook with open brims and whatever else, or whatever you defined ugly as. And so that was how you had to create and break out all of these distinctions. So for nudity, for instance, it was something like, for women, you couldn't have an exposed areola. And if you had an exposed areola for a while, they would they had changed the rules. So that an exposed areola was fine, but you couldn't have raised surface area, like i.e. like you couldn't have a raised nipple. And so like that was like literally the level of detail that you would have to look at a picture to decide whether or not it broke a nudity policy. And it was the same for graphic violence. That kind of became a if the insides are on the outside type of thing, because you can't measure the amount of blood something is, you can't measure, but just like, if you can see the insides outside someone's body, then that comes down the end. That was the way that these rules evolved into these very just enforceable, more easily enforceable, less standards-based approaches. Of course, one of the most important questions that will arise in any system of evidence and proof is the question of who should serve as the judge in determining whether a standard of proof has been met. As these private evidence and proof regimes emerged, who did social media platforms, let's just use your example, Facebook, task with that responsibility? I know you mentioned earlier that in their earliest stages, it was just college students moderating the user content on these platforms, but I assume they've elaborated or they've developed into a more sophisticated regime now. They absolutely did. So I think around 2009, when they started to create these system of rules and Simultaneously, they started to outsource their content moderation, as I said before, to places like India and the Philippines. You know, I say outsource, but outsource is a very precise meaning. I think we think of it anyone outside the home base of the corporation. But um, it was actually people that were either directly employed by Facebook in call centers there or people employed by external um, outsourced work centers that Facebook would hire for periods of time. And those people would be trained to look at this material and they would go through significant amounts of training and there was redundancy built into the system so that 
every, like, I don't know, every hundred pieces of material, a piece would be sent through again. And if it got differing responses on the piece, it would be flagged for more review or the people who had flagged it would be looked at to see if they were accurately assessing these, this content. And the training was really meant to, I, I used to say that there was, it was meant to train away all of your cultural norms. But now I think that it's really, I really changed my mind about this. It's, it's not that they Facebook trained away all the cultural norms. They just retrained them on Facebook's cultural norms, which were inherently American, especially at the beginning. And so they, they did this retraining. And then these people basically would get a piece of content that comes through that's been flagged and it's stripped of all um, contextual information for privacy reasons, except for the flagged image specifically, or if there was a comment that was flagged, the comment. And they're expected to make a decision in just a couple of seconds, a couple of minutes. Your paper notes that, quote, content moderators act in a capacity very similar to that of a judge. Moderators are trained to exercise professional judgment concerning the application of a platform's internal rules. And in applying these rules, Moderators are expected to use legal concepts like relevance, reason through example, and analogy. Tell us more about the connection between moderators on social media platforms and judges perhaps making evidentiary rulings. Yeah, so actually they used a lot of terms that you might be familiar with with evidence. Relevance was a big one of them. And the idea was that they were trained on which types of content and which types of information were relevant. So for example, they would be trained to not look at the user's profile or the user's picture or whatever else that was not relevant information, depending on the query of what was going on. Or they would be asked to look at the relevant information in something like hate speech was trying to determine whether or not someone was like a protected class. They had a list of various recognized protected classes. And then they would be told to disregard or not, it was not relevant that whether or not the person posting it was a protected class. It, it always struck me as kind of a very judge-like thing where a judge can see a piece of evidence, know it exists, exclude it from consideration, and then decide based on what's in front of him or her, the determination of whether or not it matters to the case at hand or how it bears on the case at hand. And I always thought that that was very similar to judge-made application of rules of evidence. I want to follow up with a similar question, because our listeners will likely know that many of the federal rules of evidence are designed to mitigate the potential biases or prejudices of fact finders. How do private evidence and proof systems handle the risk that similar biases might affect their moderators' decisions? This is what I was getting to with the training. A lot of the training is really built around trying to pull out those biases and to make sure that they're not having a role. And I'm not even talking biases. I'm talking about kind of like, I guess it would be even more broad. I would say that they're trying to kind of take their cultural inclinations or their gut approaches to whether something stays up or comes down out of the equation entirely. I mean, even maybe more so than we do for judges. And a great story that kind of illustrates this was there was this one period in time in which they were training a bunch of people in Hyderabad and they had just finished kind of the, the sexually explicit content section. And someone who was doing the training said, well, you know, like, but at the end of the day, like, if it just really makes you uncomfortable, if it really just seems like sexually explicit to you, you should feel free to take it down. And the result of that was that they had for six hours, I think, in India, like, every type of picture or video of open mouth kissing was removed on Facebook, because all of these content moderators in India 
open mouth kissing is very salacious in India. And so to them, this was something that would be sexually impermissive content and would come down. Of course, that was not what people in California thought should be happening with their content on, on the site. And so it, it got all that reinstated. But it's just kind of this interesting moment. Of, you know, of course they have their biases, but the entire idea of the professionalization of them making these moderation decisions through training is very similar to the type of professionalization I think happens in becoming a lawyer or becoming a judge. And something that I mentioned in the article, Dan Kahan has done a lot of work on this, about the idea of professional responsibility and how we train in a culture of certain biases out of our decision makers. Now, your paper argues that the appropriate way to conceive of these new governors of speech is not as, say, an analog to company towns or broadcasters or even editors, but instead as an entirely new actor that sits between the state and private speakers in a triadic model. But I wonder if this conception perhaps gives those media platforms too much power. Because just as the federal rules of evidence can have a significant impact on the outcome of a trial by excluding or including different types of evidence, so too it seems that these platforms can have a significant impact on the public discourse, or even the Overton window itself, by excluding or including different types of speech. As a normative matter, then, shouldn't we want to import something at least comparable to First Amendment protections into this field? Yeah, this is something that we're struggling a lot with right now. And I think that there's, I think it's a great question. I mean, what you're basically saying is that there should be some, a slightly harder baseline of something almost constitutional that grounds the free speech concerns or the things that we would like to preserve in how these platforms are creating their rules and how they're basically enforcing them. And I think that that's a really great point, but it's also really hard because I don't know what that would look like. Right now, all of these platforms are American companies for the most part, and they, they're obviously private. They have this prerogative to do what it is they want, but they do have to follow the laws in various countries. And so as you're seeing in Europe right now, there's been a lot of movement on privacy and hate speech and regulation that these platforms have to keep up with. It's a very interesting, I think it like actually highlights the triadic model super well, because I don't know that I want Europe more than anyone else to be dictating the levels of free speech that are expected on these platforms. But I don't know that that for a company, just because it happened to be founded in America and it happens to export global free speech norms through its platform and its architecture, that that's necessarily better either. And so I think that there's this moment of, as you say, the Overton window to either reset it or to make sure that it's not dragged in one direction or the other by one power or one player and to maybe kind of create more sustainable systems of accountability that go directly between users and these platforms instead of having to have nation states as intermediaries. And I think that that'll kind of hopefully end up with us in a better place. So it's just, that's a lot of new stuff. That's a lot of stuff that we've never seen before and a lot of different ways of thinking about government and a lot of different ways of thinking about the world and how it interacts with each other. So I don't know. We'll see what happens. But I think that your inclination is the right one. Final question. What's next for the literature? What type of paper would shed additional insight on this issue? Well, funny that you should ask, Alex. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, um, I am writing right now, I'm writing a paper called Facebook v. Sullivan that is looking at the public figure and newsworthiness doctrine development in these private, specifically at Facebook, as kind of it developed its work in how to think about making exceptions for newsworthiness and how to think about making exceptions for public figures in terms of what gets, stays up and comes down on the content of the site. 
and how that's informed by kind of an American notion of public figure doctrine as we see it in defamation and newsworthiness as we see it in privacy and communications torts. So that's kind of what I'm working on next. And I hope that that's going to be coming out in August. But the idea is basically that I think that people will be surprised at how much we could learn from how Facebook has implemented um, their policies. The courts could be informed by it, but also how much more than we maybe expected or I maybe expected Facebook could be informed by some of the same struggles that we've actually dealt with for years in making some of these determinations and balances. Wonderful. Well, we'll be on the lookout for that for sure. Kate, it's been great having you on the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. To my mind, Kate's paper offers us a wonderful opportunity to consider a new frontier for evidence and proof. Comparable to Robert Ellickson's examination of property rights in Shasta County, California, Kate's examination of the practices, rules, and processes of social media companies constitutes an exploration of a sphere that does not wholly reside within the shadow of the law. Within social media companies, there are no Article III judges, there is no jury, and of course, the federal rules of evidence, officially at least, have no bite. Yet, despite the absence of a formal mandate requiring implementation of an evidence and proof regime, we nonetheless see social media companies moving away from moderation decisions founded on a gut feeling, and instead moving towards a regime that looks, in many ways, like a private system of evidence and proof. For example, as Kate discussed, before any official judgment can be rendered, Social media content moderators, the judge and jury in this brave new world, are required to ensure that the universe of information before them is restricted solely to that which is relevant and not exploitative of a, quote, decision-maker's biases and emotions. In a rough sense, then, what we see here is a private form of Federal Rule of Evidence 403. Kate's paper also discusses how moderators are instructed to consider permissible and impermissible purposes for content. For example, the promotion of hate symbolism, which includes swastikas and imagery of Hitler or bin Laden, is generally barred on Facebook, yet it can be invoked for certain purposes, say to make a political statement. In requiring moderators to consider and balance permissible and impermissible purposes, then, we again see a parallel to the federal rules of evidence. The specialized relevance rules, that is, federal rules of evidence 407 through 415, require that judges employ much the same approach in evaluating whether a piece of evidence is being used for an impermissible purpose, say, a subsequent remedial measure being used to prove negligence, or is instead being used for a permissible purpose, say, a subsequent remedial measure being used for impeachment. These two examples are merely the tip of the iceberg. Other evidentiary questions are sure to arise for social media companies in the future. For example, along the lines of Rule 404b, will it be permissible for a moderator to look at a user's prior violative posts to infer that a new questionable post should be barred? In the spirit of Rule 901, will there emerge any authentication requirements if as we have seen recently in the news, a user claims that an offensive post was the result of a hack. In accordance with Rule 501, will social media companies respect any privileges, 
choosing not to consider, say, private messages between spouses when rendering moderation decisions. Of course, all of these questions must be assessed in a context that materially differs from that in which the federal rules of evidence operate. Social media moderators are not adjudicating criminal guilt. They have no power to impose civil liability. Yet, for many, the right to have a voice in the public square, or should I say, the new virtual square, is an important constitutive element of sociocultural membership. The evidentiary regime that social media content moderators employ as gatekeepers of online speech is sure to play an increasingly central role in the decades to come. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. Excited Utterance is produced by Ed Chang, and the production editor is Grace DiPietro. Additional production assistance is provided by Aaron Parcaranza, and music is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir, under the direction of Kirsten Castle-Greer. I'm your guest host, Alex Nunn, and I hope you will join me again next week when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof. <laughs>